Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, proudly wearing my basketball she wrote t-shirt because guess what that means? Caitlin Cooper is in the building <laughs> to talk about the NBA draft, believe it or not. It's my favorite version of Caitlin Cooper. It's draft Caitlin. And we're going to actually do this podcast a little bit differently than I normally have. We're going to use this as an opportunity to maybe break down a little bit of tape. Talk about some guys that Caitlin has already watched a lot of, recently written some articles about on her Patreon, which if you aren't subscribing to that, go do so. It's fantastic, particularly for Indiana Pacers fans. She's got a great eye for this stuff and a really good feel for understanding what players are trying to accomplish. So we're going to use her expertise as well as the background knowledge and the work that she's done on a couple of these prospects to really go into the film. So we'll have a nuanced discussion about upside and what we project moving forward, but we want to use some video examples. So if you're not watching this on YouTube, please go on over to our channel at Adam Spinella. It's my name on there on YouTube. Make sure that you watch some of the clips that go with this because it's going to really illuminate much of the conversation. But Caitlin, so great to have you on here. How you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. I always look back at this podcast fondly because I was the first guest and there was the a first. lot of pressure on me to not sink it. And here we are, however many episodes later, it's still up and running. I'm still coming back. So I wasn't a complete disaster. Look at us. Look at us, man. You, you started all of this and uh, I'm, I'm very glad that episode 67, we get you back here for episode number three. And it, Caitlin, look, You've been doing some draft stuff the last year or two and really using this opportunity in April and May to dive into some tape, some prospects. What do you find to typically be your process for going about watching some of these games or prospects? Are you more of a, a full games, a clips? Like how much do you want to really dive into a player before you feel adequately prepared to talk about them as a prospect? Right. So when I started doing this last year, my process going into it and it's remained the same is I try to read absolutely nothing about them going into it. I don't read any of the mock drafts or, you know, any of the little blurbs. I want to go into it completely blind because I don't watch college basketball much during the regular season because I'm covering the Pacers. So when the Pacers season gets over and I start drilling down on, okay, like, you know, the Pacers for their sake, they have a hole at the four. They might be interested in fours. That's why I selected Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks as the first two. I just start watching as many full games as possible. I'm very pro in everything I do that you need to watch the entirety of the film because there's still value in watching clips. When you get done watching the full games, sometimes, you know, going through and watching every time they missed a three and seeing why they missed, you know, there's value in that. But if you don't see the entirety of it, you don't see what they're doing when it's not their usage. What are they doing? What's Jairus Walker doing on the weak side when there's an empty side pick and roll? Does he stand there? Does he have recognition of where he can find spots? Like you're not going to see that if you're just picking clips. I think that's a hundred percent right. And like the, for me, scouting is about finding patterns after just watching film time and time again. And, and the clips are really good for condensing some of those patterns but you don't understand why they occur unless you actually watch the full games in the context of everything. So I'm, I'm 100% with you uh, that, that there needs to be the ability to dive into just understanding everything going on around a player, not just the highlights or the clips in a certain area or territory. And, and you'd mentioned the Pacers stuff with maybe looking for a positional fit at the four, and that drove you to look at Jairus Walker and Taylor Hendricks as the first two guys. And for those draft heads who have been following the draft a little bit more closely since maybe October, November, both of these players had a very strong mid-season rise. Jairus Walker probably started a little bit more well-regarded than Hendricks, who was almost entirely off one-and-done radars. We get to late February, early March. Both of them seem to be neck-and-neck, neck, so to speak, in a lot of people's minds. And this is a a big time debate right now in whether it's NBA circles and front offices, other scouts and online places, who do you prefer Jairus Walker or Taylor Hendricks? And it's very easy to look at them and say, well, they kind of play the same position. They're both really strong defenders. So they're kind of similar in a lot of ways, 
But I think the more you dive into the game, you see there are a lot of nuanced differences between both of them, particularly on the offensive end, but also on defense and in how they impact the game. So what Caitlin and I are going to do today is really dive into each prospect, give a little bit of an overview, just share what our observations have been on those two guys, and then dive into a couple clips, particularly on the defensive end, to really illustrate why we likely believe that they're going to be really strong defenders at the next level. That sound good with you, Caitlin? Definitely. I totally agree with you, too, that these two guys, the more you watch them, it's almost like they're opposites in a lot of respects. So yeah, this should yeah. be fun. Yeah, it is. It's a, a really fascinating debate and conversation. And, and I think the right way I want to frame this from the very beginning is the term better is probably going to be as much associated with the players and the schemes that you surround these players in at the next level than anything else. That They're both pretty talented guys. They have some deficiencies. They have some areas they need to continue to improve. But I think the term better is going to be more semantics of fit than anything else. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. So let's start with Jairus, Caitlin. Uh, what are your initial thoughts or summaries, takeaways about him as a prospect? I think the two big flashbulb things that I walk away from is, is he a four who can play the five or is he a five who can play the four? And then also kind of the disconnect between his physique and his physicality that he plays with to a degree on both ends of the floor. Yeah. Those, uh, those are really good ways of, of kind of framing the conversation there. I want to start on the offensive end a little bit because that lack of using his physique is really glaring to me. Six foot eight, maybe a little bit taller, has good length at about seven foot two wingspan, thick frame. He's built in a really, really sturdy fashion for a freshman and a true freshman at that. So with Walker, I was hoping and expecting to see, based on a lot of the AAU tape and having seen him play at younger levels, that he would come in and lower his shoulder and be able to get to the free throw line with it as, as a face-up driver, somebody who, when he puts the ball on the floor, is going to get to the basket. And he kind of does neither of those. He relies a lot on that runner and that floater and doesn't necessarily have the propensity to draw contact in the way that you would want for somebody who's really big and strong. Now, as you were watching the film, do you see any causes or maybe even biomechanical things behind that? Or is it just kind of, he hasn't tapped into doing it enough yet? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, number one is Houston spacing isn't great. Like Marcus Sasser, I think is the only person on that team who shot above 35% from three. So there's certain possessions, especially in the game that I watched against Miami, Florida, where, you know, the ball side corner man's going to come over on Jarris and then there's somebody in the dunker spot as well. So sometimes it's a necessary counter that he stop and pop and go with that floater, but that's what you want it to be. You want the floater to be a counter to either the coverage or, you know, if he's in the short roll and people tag up, then you go to that. Not that that's your go-to. And too often for him, it is the go-to. I think you'll find a lot of possessions too, where at least for me, it feels like he has a driving lane and sometimes he'll settle for the fall away or the floater, or you'll see him, you know, going across the lane. And the one that is most bothersome to me is if he's driving across the lane, like from right to left and he gets to the floater and then he's having to go across like the grain of his body in order to put that up. And then he ends up falling off in spots that you're saying where it feels very possible for him to be turning the corner and getting to the rim and he doesn't necessarily do it. And then, yeah, I mean, I just think some of it's aggressiveness, but then there's also some wide angle driving there where you want, he, he doesn't fully take straight line drives, which I did have a scout talk to me and say that more of that showed up in the film at IMG, which I don't have access to that, you know, a year ago he was taking some straighter line drives and that's kind of widened out a bit, but I wasn't able to compare that. So. Yeah, I saw a lot more straight line drives. I think I saw it in different ways from both IMG and from you know AAU tape that he played in, where it was more catching the ball in the middle third of the floor and having like dribble handoff keepers, elbow isolations, plays where you know they were running horns actions and he could quickly make a read and get downhill in one or two bounces. Then when he catches it from 20 feet or beyond, it's a little bit harder for him to get to the rim in, in one clean bounce and he ends up being a little bit wider of a driver as a result. His second step quickness isn't quite there. And with Jairus, I went back and watched all the film and the possessions 
on Synergy and kind of charted this out myself. You know, he had this past year 21 dunk attempts in the half court. Only one of them came where he caught the ball outside of 12 feet. Everything else was basically a catch and finish, something off of the roll, standing in the dunker spot, which, you know, that'll go back to the, is he a four or a five conversation that we'll have a little bit later. But I think the the lack of rim pressure that he generates as a face-up driver, it's just a little bit concerning. I don't know if I'd call it a red flag because, like you said, sometimes it's necessary. It's nice for players to have touch. But when you have the frame and the physique that he has, it can be a really, really pun intended, powerful tool for him if he's able to tap into it the right way. Yeah, because, I mean, the numbers reflect that. I, mean, I think he took three fewer shots as runners than at the rim, yeah. I think, when I looked on Synergy at those numbers. So, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Like, some of it's – like it, it literally is a bit confusing to figure out why he's doing it at times. And I know that's not the most interesting thing for people to listen to. But when you watch it, it, it feels – it's not even necessarily that he has to play like a tank. Like I said, he has those opportunities, and sometimes he'll go to, like, the turnaround jumper. Like, when he does have self-creation attempts – he seems somewhat hesitant to do it. Like he, it's not because his handle is completely dysfunctional. It's not like if people watch the Pacers this year, like if you watch Jalen Smith, you're never going to see Jalen Smith outside the three point line, threading the ball between his legs or, you know, doing something behind the back, but you will see Jarris Walker do that. And sometimes he does create a little bit of an advantage or a little bit of separation. And then he squanders it because he hesitates and he'll settle for a jump shot out of that. So and he doesn't have the cleanest mechanics on his pull-up, which I think is is maybe a transition point into the shooting aspect of this for Jairus because it tends to be one of the more polarizing aspects of trying to figure out his evaluation. I'm not a big fan of his pull-up shooting because I think his form struggles a little bit. He doesn't get enough lift on his jump shot. He almost leans backward in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I don't really love the touch that he exhibits in the mid-range area, whether it's a runner or an actual pull-up jumper. I think that limits some of the self-creation upside, but I do agree. Like he is much quicker twitch of a guy who can handle it a little bit. Like he should be able to do some mismatch stuff. You just hope that it would result a little bit more frequently in attempts at the rim. When it comes to the catch and shoot, where are you on Jarris with mechanics, with kind of long-term trajectory? Do you buy into him as being a guy who can space the floor on the perimeter? Let me flip that question to you and say that when I ask myself that, when I'm watching the film, and this goes to the NBA or at college, a lot of times I ask myself, how much does the defense buy the jump shot? And what I mean by that is Jarris takes, I think, what, 2.83s per game? So think about any given NBA game, how many possessions are there? Somewhere in the 90s. So you're only shooting on two possessions. So what happens on the other 97? impacts the spacing a lot more. Now, some of that's determined by whether you're making shots on those two threes that you take, but I like to watch what happens to a player and how they're guarded when they're not shooting the ball. So like, for instance, watching him play against Virginia, we know Virginia is going to play the pack line defense. What does he do to combat that? And if he does knock down a little, does that make them adjust at all? Will a team like that adjust at all? And like throughout the course of that game, they really didn't, but you would watch him on the weak side and he would have the recognition to be like, okay, our team's running an empty side pick and roll. The point guard's going to attack middle out of that. So I'm going to relocate from the nail and go to the corner and we're going to wing exchange because they're going to have a better opportunity to take advantage of that nail help than I'm going to necessarily as a spot up shooter. So that's good recognition on his part, but it also speaks to where he is as a spot up shooter. So I think that he has he's comfortable, I feel, for the most part. If somebody's sagging off, he doesn't have a lot of record scratch, a lot of hesitation. He lets it go. But I think on his landing, you can kind of notice a slight drift, almost like you know a little bit of winds hitting him where he doesn't land completely straight up and down all the time. And he generally misses short. He has a very high arcing shot. And when he does miss it, it's short. He doesn't take a lot of deep threes. Um, and when you look at the catch-and-shoot numbers, not a lot of these are contested. I think – he was at about a 45% contest rate. Yeah. So that means that this is what his conversion rate is, and he's not being guarded all that often. So, Yeah, the, the, 
there needs to be a little bit more consistency from him in that regard. I, I'm glad you mentioned the the slight sway in his shot. That is one of those things that you notice sometimes where he he looks like he's getting that slight breeze coming in for him. Uh, I noticed the the changing trajectory of the arc. A lot of times it is high arcing. Sometimes it's not. And that's a frustrating part for me. Like I, you want guys who have the same consistent release every time. I do think that Houston could have utilized him a little bit more in some different actions to maybe – combine all of the skills that he brings a little bit better. For example, put him more as a screener in the pick and roll where he can use his strength, his quick finishing ability and long strides to be a catch and finish guy when he rolls, where the attention that goes on a guy like Marcus Sasser coming off of that screen creates pick and pop jumpers for him where he's open. And if he doesn't have a shot off of those, turn him into an immediate dribble handoff opposite guy where now all of a sudden, if he doesn't have the shot off the pop, he can be a playmaker. He can turn the corner with those keepers, which he was great at before coming to Houston. That was a huge part of his game, was really feeling if he was going for a dribble handoff and he couldn't get it to the guy, he would keep that, turn the corner, and get to the rim pretty quickly. So all of those skills can pop if he's used in a little bit different of a way. But I think that usage is going to go back to your initial point and question about Jairus Walker. Is he more of a four who can play the five or is he more of a five who can play the four? And I'm curious on the offensive end only. We'll dive into the defense and the tape in a second. Offensively, where do you come down on that conversation right now? Well, let's let's turn it to here and say if the shot doesn't fall at the same rate as it did at Houston, which I like the point that you just made because there's not a lot of variety in what types of shots he took, but I think that was somewhat more a function of Houston's offense than it right. necessarily spoke to him. I mean, there was one possession that stood out to me a lot when they played SMU where he came off a ghost screen and looked to attack with his left like with a pivot rip through, and he again had a lane, didn't take it, and then backpedaled to the corner, but made, made the shot backpedaling to the corner. So that was like one kind of rare moment where he was shooting off a little bit of motion, but you didn't see a lot of that. Like there's not a big mixture of motion threes from him or like moving into the corner along the baseline or something like that, but that he wasn't really used in that way. So um, let's say that the three doesn't fall though. And that the, the, the catch and drive stuff doesn't come. What are you going to do with him at that point? I have a few ideas, but I want to hear what you think first. If he's a four, if he's a four. Yeah. If he's a four, I think that it tends to be a little bit more of, like we said, middle of the floor playmaker. Um, You know, I would, I would want to keep the ball in his hands almost similar to the way that, you know, not a lot of teams run this stuff anymore, but doing a lot of horns actions, like we talked about, where you keep the ball in the middle third of the floor, you have one handler who's your guard and you have your four and your five as bigger guys, and you can do a lot of different options there. But you want Jarris to touch the ball in elbow actions, whether it's Chicago or you know corner slip split things that you can do with him as a playmaker, which then turns him into a quick decision maker off of dribble handoffs, quick ball screens, things where he can get into space and make those actions. I think he's going to be a good screener. I think he's an underrated screen and roll finishing guy. And I do believe that there are ways to utilize that next to a a non-shooting five. But I do think the best utilization of Jairus, if he does not shoot long-term, is going to be playing him with another big man who can shoot and stretch the floor. Yeah, because, I mean, I think if, if neither of those two things comes along, then he becomes somewhat of a hiding place if you're using him in a, a traditional stretch four yeah. role because there's just too many incentives at the NBA level to sink in off of a four man, no matter where they're standing, because that puts your second biggest defender right at the rim. It simplifies rotations. If you're using a shorter closeout, you don't have to X out. You're not putting your defense into rotation. There's just too many advantages to that. So I think like some little small things, like if he is in the corner, then maybe when, you know, if your regular five man's running middle pick and roll, maybe you have him corner cut to the dunker spot and kind of screen his own man, and then you can have the guy at the wing drift into the corner off of that. Mm-hmm. Or he can cut under the basket and open some space for the roll man. But, I mean, these are very little tiny advantages. So, also, like, maybe if he's in the lane, you could have him seal his own guy when they're running pick and roll. Like, those little types of things. But I kind of agree with you. It then becomes the question of, even if he is playing at the four, is he being defended by the four? 
Right. And, and, if and he, not, if he's not being defended by the four, then that's when you need to put him into pick and roll action. And that is an advantage that you have with him, that you mm-hmm. can move him around and use him in different ways. So again, like to use the example I said before, with Jalen Smith, Jalen Smith can be a role man, but Jalen Smith isn't going to play make out of the short role like Jairus mm-hmm. Walker is going to. So you do have that advantage where you can put him in the middle of the floor. Cause I do want to talk a little bit and get your opinion of some of his short roll reads. Um, Cause like you said, Houston didn't use him a ton. Yeah. He didn't roll off a lot of screens and use those, but um, what's your general thoughts on that? I'm pretty impressed by the short roll stuff. I think that that's an area that he can really have an impact at, at the next level. And, you know, I am a big believer that you end up being really good at something that you're forced to defend against a lot in practice or vice versa. So Houston on the defensive end of the floor, they love to hard hedge or trap on ball screens. They play a really aggressive style. And when you're on offense in practice and the rest of your teammates are coming at you in live drills and trapping you and you're setting ball screens, you're learning how to make those reads out of the short roll. So even if he hasn't shown a ton of functionality in it in games, just in terms of frequency, He looks good in the moments that he touches the ball in the short roll. And I trust that he's gotten enough reps just going against that in practice, knowing how to dissect those aggressive defenses that I think he's going to be a really effective playmaker in those areas. Yeah. Cause the thing that's really good insight that going against the practice, I, as I did notice that Houston did that, but I wouldn't have thought of that in terms of his reads. But one thing that stood out to me too, out of it is that he didn't just make the read. Like a lot of times at the NBA level, like to use an example, like when Miles Turner was at summer league, he never had a single assist. And then a few seasons in, like the one read that he started making is when he was a screener, he'd immediately catch and throw it to the opposite corner. And sometimes with him, he was almost throwing the ball before he even had it because he was just anticipating that that's where the low man was going to come. I catch, I pivot, I throw. And in Jairus's case, like there were certain teams that sent the help from other areas. So like once Virginia knew, oh, they're putting him into the short roll. That's how they've adjusted for our pack line. They were sending the top defender on the two-player side to kind of impact that pocket pass, and he was still catching it, processing that really quickly and finding the opening instead of just making kind of that predetermined read that you can see a lot of bigs do. And like it kind of reminds me too, like watching Jalen Duran last year during the pre-draft process, a lot of people talked about his short roll reads too. And one thing that stood out to me with him at Memphis was that like teams would commit to him in ways that I'm like, at the NBA level, teams are not going to come and tag up. But teams might tag up against Jairus because he does have the floater at least somewhat in his bag, that he can go to that as a counter, that that will open up stuff in another way for him. So I do think that there is a way for a team that if the thing is a stretch four, doesn't necessarily completely pan out for him. And there are games where he's defended by fives. There's still other stuff that you can do with him. No doubt. And the conversation with the short roll, I mean, it's a great skill for him to have, but it's only as effective as the lead guard that he plays with commanding teams to come out and send to or be more aggressive on the perimeter. That he's not going to get the ball in those situations if he's playing with a non-shooting point guard or, or, or pick and roll partner. That he needs somebody who's going to command that attention in order to unlock the ability to utilize that skill. So I think like it's definitely Tyrese Halliburton, there. you might say. Like Tyrese Halliburton, we might say. So, like you had brought up a, a point about, you know, particularly with Indiana, this idea of cross-matching of fours and fives. And I want to save that for a little bit later in the podcast with this. But in, in particular, in watching some of the film at Houston, do you think that he pops more as that screen and roll guy who's playing more of the five on offense? Or the best utilization of him is going to be on the perimeter, hoping that he continues to shoot? Well, I have this maxim that I like to use that if in your head when you're watching the film and you have to ask yourself, is this player a four or a five? They're generally a five. If that's if that's a question that you're asking, that's generally what you think. I think that offensively, he trends as more of a small ball five than a four at the current moment. Defensively, I think that you have a lot more leeway with what you can do. And I think that's a beautiful segue now into looking at a couple clips on the defensive end. So for those who aren't watching us on YouTube, make sure you head there to check out some of these clips. But we're going to let this roll, Caitlin, and kind of walk through a couple different possessions. If you see anything, let me know, and we will rewind and talk about it. So Jarris Walker, 25 and white for Houston on these possessions. Just want to kind of show his general mobility, communication. I love the way he points through actions. 
sees that there's a potential switch, allows them to stay, and then keeps in the possession to get back to his man. So again, handoff action, points to try to get through instead of going through the switch, guards down low and gets a great contest with his length, and then he's off and running. That length and his hand activity. I like what you're saying with the communication and the pointing, but a lot of his defense, I think we look at his body and his build and you think a lot of it's about the physicality, but for him, a lot of it has to do with how active his hands are. Yep. And hands and feet are both related. He stays close to the the shot maker or shot attempter with his feet, which allows him to utilize that length. Again, here's communication points to the switch this time on the ball screen. And you can see his mobility arms go up right away on this drive and here comes that ball screen points out the switch calls it out early and as the drive comes arms go up right away walls up to contest utilizes that length right away walls up in verticality for sure and he's been great at that all year this is a little bit later of a sweet switch but good emergency recovery and again there are those hands going up right away when he gets a smaller guy that he has to defend he uses every inch of his 7-2 wingspan to try to contest those shots while moving his feet Now we get a little bit more into the recognition side of things. And this was one of those smaller plays that I don't think most people would think is as impressive as it looks. It's not an enormous or this really emphatic block, but it's more so about the situation here and transition defense. A lot of teams are taught to protect the basket first and then match up from there. So you want to get the ball, flood it and push it to a side make sure that the rim is protected. And that's what this player for Houston is going to do near the basket here. And then you have Jairus Walker continue to come back into the play. But what we see is Auburn's big man who makes that rim run there, do a great job of sealing help up the line, which prevents anyone else from Houston's team trying to get a contest in here. Jairus recognizes that seal and then quickly comes over to be able to cover up that basket. In the NBA, that's probably a dunk, but I think his recognition to understand what his team needs is off the charts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the number one thing that pops about him on kind of both ends of the floor, right? I mean, when he's in that low man role and what you pointed out earlier is true, like Houston ran a lot of aggressive coverage and the pick and roll and it to a degree, like I understand that was very successful for them. I kind of wish we could have seen him running a little, a few more different coverages, whether it was in drop or, you know, whatever else they were going to use him with, especially if, if some NBA teams want to play him at small ball five. But his ability as the low man to play that cat and mouse game with point guards and anticipate if they're going to throw it to the screener or they're going to throw it to the corner is is pretty preternatural and that not everybody has that same sense. And I think we can get into that a little bit later with Hendricks too, because I actually think that's a little bit of a, another area where they're a little bit different. But yeah, his his off-ball instincts really pop off the page when you watch Jairus. Folks, Caitlin has not seen these clips before. She's just a natural and understands and knows what's coming next, because that's exactly what we're going to talk about here, those, <laughs> those low man rotations. So Jairus is really in tune whenever he's the low man. And and the low man is what we describe as the guy who's the lowest opposite defender. If the ball is on, as it is here, the left offensive wing, Jairus would be guarding the right corner. And he's always in tune to rotations. He times his leaps really well, uses his athleticism to contest those shots. And this play right here is the one I think you're talking about, that cat and mouse game, where first play, he makes that rotation to protect the basket. Second attempt here, we see the ball screen come. There is Houston showing that really aggressive coverage, trying to come out, send two to the ball. Cincinnati will slip their big man to the front of the rim. Now, the ball handler here assumes that Jarris is going to tag, is going to commit to taking away that roll. So he throws a skip pass to the corner, which is where Jarris is guarding. And you can see him kind of read that right away, not overcommit to the roll, recover in time to block the shot just amazing instincts and recovery from Jairus yeah that was actually the first clip that I think I included in my article when I wrote about him was that block against Cincinnati he has some too where he's pretty fundamental it's not a huge thing but he will actually make contact as the tagger and there's ones where he can make contact and still get out and steal a skip pass that's yeah. just absurd. There's not a lot of people who can do that. He's he's really, really long. His footwork and anticipation is is great in that regard. But you said the cat and mouse game to keep offensive playmakers, even the best in the world, guessing and trying to read what you're going to do is a really underrated and under-discussed skill. 
Here he is getting through an action. Nice job getting through the chin. He's in that tagger spot already. Starts to move on the perimeter here. And there's a little bit later of a recognition, almost an emergency rotation to the rim. And gets through the initial action. As they move it around here on this possession for Temple, it's a slip in that pocket pass through a quick occurring ball screen, and he goes from being almost out of the play, a little bit farther out of position, to a really quick recognition, recover, and uses his quick hands to contest at the rim. And I think that speaks to his ground coverage, right? Because if you can go from actually making contact on a tag in the paint and getting out to take a skip pass, or that one that you just showed, where you can go from being clear outside the block to getting in once a guy's rolling and still be able to get that into recovery, that's you covering a lot of ground. And that showed up too at times when Houston was having him step out when he was defending screens and he's hedging. And what his stamina was to be able to do that across sometimes maybe one, two, three ball screens in a possession, and he's not losing energy to still be able to do it, that, that was pretty telling as well. Yeah, and again, a couple more clips here. Here's another aggressive show from Houston. Slip in a pocket pass from Tulane to try to beat them. Walker rotates early. This is what it looks like. A lot of times we want to laud guys for the block shots that they have, and we saw that on the last possession where Jarris was able to recognize, recover, get to the rim, and block a shot. But the best interior defense remains shot deterrence, not letting a guy even get that attempt off. And his timeliness to rotate over, meet him out decently high so that he can't take one bounce and get to the basket and force other big men to make plays off the short roll is really impressive to me. He was so timely with so many of these rotations. Here's another trap. Hit the roll, man. Jarris is there before he can go and make a move with it. So really, really timely instincts on his end. Yeah, that one's pretty impressive given that's that's an empty side pick and roll and he's coming clear across the lane to be able to come get that one. I like what you said about blocks too because I have an analogy that I like to use where I say I can compare it to mouse traps. You're happy when a mouse trap works, but you don't want to have to need it. That's kind of how block shots are too. You're happy yeah. when you get a block, but you don't want to have to need a block. And Jarris is good at preventing that with his size and the way that he can stand up. And and like what you're saying in the short roll, I think he's pretty savvy too about knowing how close he needs to play there and whether that big, he can give them space or if he needs to get up clear on the ground and force the pass. Yep. And that's where I think his skills on the offensive end and defensive end in short roll situations are related. He's such a good short roll passer because he understands how to break down defenses in that regard, but he also knows how to be a smart, timely defender to get there to make it challenging on short roll playmakers. So last possession that I wanted to show here on Jarris, we're just kind of putting all of it together. Again, the communication, he's quarterbacking this from the weak side, pointing out everything, ready in position to roll and rotate, gets there early on time. He defends and communicates with a ton of energy. So Jarris Walker is certainly lauded and known for some switchability how a bigger guy like him can defend in space and on the perimeter but he always stood out to me as being an exquisite help defender and a guy like Hendricks who we'll talk about in a minute gets a ton of highlights for some of the jaw-dropping block shots that he'll have but that mousetrap analogy is the perfect one because he is the guy that's going to keep your house pest free not necessarily there to clean up the mess once they get in. Yeah, and something else with Jarris that I kind of want to ask you about is what? how do you feel about his closeouts? I feel fine with them. I think that his feet might be a tad heavy at times, uh, but I think that he uses his length pretty well in order to cover them up. Yeah, I think that there was a few that I noticed where he was a little bit more choppy and didn't necessarily come out to his stride. And because he's coming out choppy, it, it it's a little bit easier to beat him off of that. Or I wonder if he'll pick up fouls sometimes at the next level with the way that he comes out. But I didn't get to see a ton of that because of what different roles he was in at times. So I just wondered what your opinion was after what you had seen. Yeah, that's, uh, again, my overall takeaway is generally super, super positive about Jarris on the defensive end of the floor. Great versatility as a team and a help defender. Probably best guarding threes and fours. And then We'd like to see a little bit more from different pick and roll coverages that we didn't quite get to at Houston because they were so aggressive, but that small ball five and almost a switch everything type of lineup where he can either play that role on ball screens or help others from behind. Really, really important one for teams in crunch game minutes. 
the offense is going to be the work in progress for him. Do we buy the shot? Can he improve his rim pressure? Is he able to unlock some of the other skills as a playmaker, passer, et cetera, within a team scheme, whether he's at the four or the five, or is it dependent on what position he really plays? And I think a lot of it too, and what you started out the podcast with depends on who else is on the floor with him. Like you can move him around, which is helpful in terms of him just being a generally productive role player at the very least. But what type of point guard is he playing with? And defensively, who else is going to be out there with him? Because I think that I generally like him better in the low man role, secondary rim protector role, than maybe some spot minutes at small ball five defensively at times. I did notice there were times where if he was out there at the five, that they would pre-switch him out into screening action. So that tells me they weren't super comfortable with the idea of him switching out to speedy point guards, which is going to be more so at the NBA level, I guess we could say. But I mean, that also might be a point of that they wanted to keep him low around the basket. But I I did notice those spots. So I don't know if he would be fully a switch one through five all of the time, with the exception of maybe some like late clock situations if you got into – you know, trouble and needed to make that switch. I think that's where I come down on it too, on the switchability. So let, let's move to Taylor Hendricks now because same conference, also a freshman, similar kind of position where he toggles between the four and the five in some regard, drastically different role on the offensive end of the floor, drastically different type of athlete. Caitlin, you just did a, a huge piece on Taylor Hendricks, which is fantastic. And I want to know your initial thoughts or, or kind of summaries of what you think his offensive game is like. I think the thing with Taylor Hendricks is, is the more games you watch of him, the more intrigued you get by him. Because um, the first one I watched was his very last game of the year in the NIT tournament against Oregon. And he wasn't super involved in the offense. They weren't running as many actions for him. And I was kind of like, you know, where's the hype coming from here on the offensive yeah. end? Like there's not, there's not a lot of involvement. And then the more of him I watched, I was like, oh, okay, I'm starting to see it a little bit. He's almost the inverse of Jairus. And that something I could have brought up when we were just talking about Jairus is that when they would run specific, like we're running wedge action, they would run like a little screen, the screen or wedge action for him to slide to the block. He wasn't always as aggressive as he could be when actions were directly run for him. But if they didn't get something out of that, Jairus knows how to keep playing to get to the next action, which is a very valuable skill at the NBA level. If you want to play flow game, you can do that with Jairus Walker on the floor in the way that you were kind of describing where, you know, you could play him at the top of the key, run side to side action with him to get to another action on the other side of the floor. When you watch Taylor Hendricks, it's almost the reverse of that. When a play is run for him, he's generally going to think that that means a shot is for him. And if the play isn't being run for him, He doesn't necessarily know where to insert himself and there'll be some ambling stuff with him as a connector. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a very great way of summarizing a lot of it. I do think there was progress made throughout the year that if you were to watch things in a chronological way, like the early stuff was pretty rough of playing off ball of knowing what to do when he didn't get his touches. And I thought, Central Florida tried to spoon feed him a couple more plays and on ball attempts to try to keep him happy or, or utilize him as best they could while he's going to be out there. Because if you're going to be as valuable of a defender as he was, you probably need some sort of touches or involvement in the offense just to make sure that you're engaged and keeping your head screwed on straight. I think that's just normal basketball stuff. It's really, really rare to find that Dennis Rodman, PJ Tucker, like Ben Wallace guy who never wants to touch the basketball on offense and is just going to go out there for 35 minutes and beat the piss out of you on the other end. With Hendricks, the on-ball stuff is fascinating. I have absolutely no clue what to make of it, how to harness it, how real it's going to be in two or three years because I don't have a ton of context for, and I always struggle with guys who are at his position that show handling skills. Is this going to be one of those guys in the NBA who plays through that role and has the ball in his hands and has a marginal advantage there? Or is it another one of those like Jaden McDaniels types who showed a lot of that pre NBA and then has to just throw it all out the window and buy into all catch and shoot cutting and just buy into defense. Yeah, I mean, I think UCF ran some pet actions that you're referring to there. They like to bring him up 
with the opposite big out of horns and they'd go to the elbows and then he'd, he'd cut out and then he'd get a ball screen. And that's kind of similar. A lot of NBA teams will run like horns get. I mentioned that in my article that the, the Pacers like to run that for Benedict Matherin as a way for him to get a close range touch and get to his strong hand. So they would do that with Hendricks to get him downhill with his right. And there were times, depending upon the coverage, where he could mosey to his spots pretty well. Like what you're saying, like he looked comfortable, even though he has, you know, some of the issues with his handle. He has a very high handle. He seems to be somewhat allergic to going to his left at times. But if you're running in action for him to get to his strong hand, he was okay, but he's not impervious to changes in coverage. So against the types of teams that would switch out on that, he he's not as comfortable creating the separation in order to get that shot. So then it becomes, you know, how much would you purpose running actual stuff for him? if that's what it's going to be, depending upon what type of defense he's up against. Yeah. Yeah. And look, he provides versatility outside of that, but I, I did notice just like you're saying, they tried to run more action for him to keep him involved, to get him to his right hand and use him more as a face up driver and attacker. There are some spurts of things that are interesting. There's a long ways to go in tightening it all together. I don't know how, many eggs I would put into that basket of coming to fruition at the next level. But there's still other areas where Hendricks is a positive force, very good athlete near the basket, whether it's in the dunker spot, maybe out of the pick and roll, smart cutting along the baseline. If he gets the ball, like he is one of the few guys that I will find who wants to rise up and try to dunk it in traffic. And I think that that's a really valuable skill to have is even when there are bodies around you, are you springy enough as an athlete and confident that you'll be able to convert on this just to go up and attempt the damn thing? And he, he had a lot of really impressive finishes off of the catch and finish this year. And that's important, right? Because the layup conversion rate isn't really happening right now. It is not. And that's, that's the yin and the yang of this. He's much more toolsy and flashy and you see some really cool potential things with a guy like Hendricks that maybe you don't as much for Jarris, but he's so much farther behind on some of the rudimentary things like cleaning up his handle. If he's going to be a face up attacker, not being allergic to going left converting on his actual layups and not being a below the basket finisher. I'd love that he gets up and tries to dunk. He also got a lot of shot attempts blocked at the rim this year, which is Hard to believe for a guy who's six foot eight, six nine with a seven foot wingspan. Like he got a lot of shots near the basket blocked away. Yeah. And I think that that's for about like three different reasons because there's times where when we're talking about the left hand, if, if people haven't seen a lot of him, where he will avoid attacking the top foot so that he can go to the right. Or once he does get into the paint, there'll be like a clear avenue for him to use a reverse and get to his left. And instead, he tries to muscle up through, through people on the right side. Um, just muscling through contact in general. And that's that, again, is another comparison between these two because Jarris is built like a tank and uses a bunch of runners and soft touch. So Taylor Hendricks, though, I would have to talk to a biomechanics person, somebody that works in weight training. But I do wonder, I think a fair amount of his finishing issues have to do with strength. So then I wonder if he gets to the NBA level, he's hitting the weight room and he builds that out is the sum of the issues with finishing correct itself. Because yeah. if it does, then you feel a lot better about where what he can do offensively. Right. And, and then comes the versatility of pairing that ability to either finish off the bounce or catch and finish in traffic with the three-point shooting. And he had a pretty good year as a shooter. There were no major dips in anything. Like he was decently consistent throughout, hit them at a, at a solid percentage. What have you noticed about the shooting? several things because I'll bring up the point I did about Jarris that I like to watch how teams guard when he's not shooting. So if he was shaking up from the wing or filling behind the basketball, his defender would generally stay with him. And some of that has to do with teammates and like how much role gravity the screener has and other stuff like that, but they would stay closer. So synergy has 72% of his catch and shoot shots being guarded. And some of that's him taking some tough shots. Yeah. But it's also him being guarded. Defense is bought into his shot when you watched. And when he wasn't shooting, they tended to stay closer to him. And there's more variety in the types of shots that he took. So he would move up from the corners. He didn't hit a ton of those that I saw 
when he was kind of used as the shake cutter, but he did attempt them. There were a couple out of bounds plays where they would run him along a baseline stagger into the corner that could be useful because like, you know, teams like a lot of NBA teams love running exit screens and that's valuable because if you have gravity coming off of those, you're removing the tagger and that tagger is going with you in opening space. So, you know, he might be in the post. If he got pushed off his spot in the post, sometimes he would step out and shoot a three and be able to hit it over the top of that mismatch because he does have such a high release. So I think from the spot up standpoint, I would feel fairly confident in the shoot and the shot continuing to translate because 40% from the corners, 39% above the break, 39% on deep threes. He took a fair amount of deep threes as well. So I didn't notice anything super hitchy. The more concerns come from like the pull-up middies and what his what his shot looks like. Yeah, I think catch and shoot wise, he's okay. And I'm glad you mentioned the tagger stuff or what he does in the dunker spot. Like he had a lot of threes just backpedaling out from that 14 to 16 foot area to the dead corner and then being able to knock down those shots while moving backwards, which is an important one for me if he's ever going to play that small ball five position. And even if he's at the four and kind of spacing around the pick and roll. That can be used in a lot of really different and unique ways. I've also started the last year or so to try to dive a little bit more into end of clock optionality that you give your team offensively, because we talk about it all the time in an end clock situation. A lot of teams tend to switch ball screens and that negates different things that offenses have run for the last 10, 15 years of, okay, we got seven seconds to score. Come set me a pick. So one of those that I noticed that Hendricks did this year at UCF was be able to ghost those pick and pop screens yeah. to the wing and knock them down quickly and at a pretty high quantity. I think that's a really valuable piece to add into a team late clock where it seems like you're running this action for the guy with the ball in his hands. But in reality, you're using either that shooting gravity to get the ball handler open or to prevent a clean switch so that you can actually get a quality attempt off. I'm really attracted to that about Hendricks, his ability to help a team in a late clock situation without needing the ball in his hands. Yeah, because, I mean, that's probably one of the top plays that NBA teams run at the end of quarters, too. One four flat, bring that guy out, ghost it, go to the wing. And that's a way that he was used. There was also some very small smattering of of pick and pop at the top of the key Mm -hmm. with him, too. Not a ton of attempts, but maybe something else that you can look at with regard to him being used in that way as well. So. I think offensively, when you watch him, you buy into the idea of him being a four who can maybe sometimes play the five a lot more than with Jarris, who I think sometimes trends more as a five who could sometimes maybe play the four. So I think that that's kind of the main difference. And I like, too, that you brought up the idea of him being so quick off his feet in the dunker spot, because I think that that kind of lends into one of um, an improvement area for me for him, where because he was toggling so much in between playing in the dunker spot and spacing that using him as an off ball scorer, he doesn't fully completely understand just how to space yet. And he's shooting the ball the way that he is. Like he doesn't even always find passing windows or, you know, his teammates, I compared him to an inflatable tube guy to use car lot because he's so demonstrative. (laughs) Yes. He's so demonstrative wanting the ball and they don't always see him. So there's opportunities where like I'll I'll use Tyrese where Tyrese Halliburton leads guys into the corner. He's going to pass you open to move to where you need to go. So if he gets better at making those reads and it's a more, there's more clarity for him where if he goes to an NBA team and it's like, okay, we want to use you as a spacer stuff will, will maybe, uh, become a little bit easier for him. Whereas right now, I think some of his off ball intuition isn't exactly where you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's right. And look, we, I am gushingly positive about Hendricks on the whole as a role player in the NBA, because he can shoot it. He can finish near the basket. There are some handling tools and things that he can use as a mismatch guy eventually. But the one area that I struggle with and, and to bring it back to Jarris a little bit, I think is a comparison point is with this idea of feel that that's a conversation that's come up time and time again in the draft space, guys who have an unbelievable processing speed, just intuitively know how to play within flow, how to make the right read with the basketball in their hands. They're incredibly valuable in the postseason when the intensity ratchets is up, when the margin for error is really zero, you want to have those galaxy brain guys on the floor at every single type of position. And Hendricks has skills. 
He's got really impressive traits with how he shoots, with the, the upside to continue to do more in that area, to catch and finish, to put pressure on the rim as a handler at the four. But I don't know how much I trust his decision-making if you were to put the ball in his hands. And that's something that, at least for me, I struggle with knowing how much that can develop long-term. Yeah, and I think that you know NBA teams – want their players they don't want to have to call a lot of set plays they want to be able to play random because that's a lot harder to scout so that when you get into the playoffs you know being able to play read and react and there there's about two different things that when Hendricks is put into a play type if they're going to run like horns flex for instance and he has the ball it's very paint by number that I know that this guy out of the corner is going to get a pin down and come to me. And that's where I'm supposed to hand off. And there's not a lot of mystery involved. He may not even look to like a lot of times NBA teams aren't going to get that guy off a flex screen, but he's not even looking for the opportunity there. His back might even be to the basket and he's just standing there holding out waiting to make the handoff. He doesn't provide a lot of mystery within the action when it's being run for him. And then when it isn't and he has to play out of pocket, you can kind of tend to see him making, reads based on what happened the prior possession. So like there's a there's a back-to-back plays when they played Temple where he noticed that they were running slot pick and roll opposite of him and his teammate slipped through it and you could tell that he noticed, oh, if the ball gets to me quicker, I can make a triangle pass and throw it to that guy. So when he had it, he, he pass faked and was like, oh, it's covered up. So next time down the floor, they run the exact same thing and you could tell that he's remembering, hey, that was open the last time. It's probably going to be open this time too. So the ball comes to him quicker. He just automatically throws it. And that time, you know, Temple had covered it up. And the correct was the more advanced read, the skip pass to the opposite corner. You're going to see that type of stuff where it's not him like what we described earlier when I was talking about Virginia making the adjustment against Jarris to high tag out of the two side, which was a different coverage. And Jarris is, you know, processing that on the fly and being like, that's where the help came from. I'm making this pass. Taylor's kind of the inverse of that. Yeah, he's got to sharpen up his feel a little bit more. And again, I think it's probably possible. I'm just not as well-versed with examples of guys who have been maybe higher tools, lower feel, who have grown into being higher feel guys in the pros. But let's dive into the defense a little bit more here and, and try to add stuff. the fun stuff. Our, our favorites for all of these guys, Taylor Hendricks here on the defensive end of the floor. You'll see him number I believe 25 in black. He is the, the low man right now. Just on that A logo for the American Conference. And there's the reactivity from the weak side. For me, this is more so what he does best right now is protect the rim. UCF also having some aggressive pick and roll defenses at times or just a lot of defensive breakdowns at the point of attack. And Hendricks needed to cover those up. For me, this is the footwork as well as the recognition, how quickly he goes from seeing it to really just hopping over there and exploding up into an ability to block that shot. Again, watch it one more time. Really quick with his feet to recognize, get over there, and explode into a contest. And the vertical pops off of two feet too. I mean, he's he's really getting up off of two feet a lot of the time. Yep. Again, same type of possession here. Kind of a breakdown a little bit at the point of attack. Spin around and splitting two defenders. Hendricks not quite seeing it. You can almost watch him stop his momentum from going out to the corner, push off, and quickly get there and vertically pop. Like These are basket-saving plays that are really, really, really valuable. One thing that stood out to me, and again, I'll compare it somewhat to Jairus, is is this is him needing the blocks in part because of what the point of attack defense is. But sometimes they will use him to be very heavy over the midline, almost 2-9-ing if they need to. And when he has to do that, he's so intent on processing as a help defender that if it's against an opponent who runs, you know, maybe a corner pin in or a lock screen or some type of weak side action, he can tend to unprocess what's happening behind him. Mm -hmm. And his quest to be the help defender, he doesn't always notice everything else in the same way that Jairus will. Yeah, and and look, he made some fantastic rotations and basket-saving blocks this year that broke traditional rotation coverages because his instincts are there so high, but that can be taken advantage of in some negative ways. And I do believe that so much of the value that he showed this year on defense 
was more so covering up the mistakes of others than like we talked about with Jarris, just being always positionally sound and proactive about where he needs to rotate. So a couple examples at the start here of his ground coverage instincts and ability to get to a spot where he can protect the basket from the weak side. And here he is kind of pointing to a switch. You can see him involved in different actions. This was one that I really loved right here. This just initial tag as they're getting through this three-man action almost ends up kind of like a shake action where this man rolls down and you see Hendricks tag, wait for the recovery before he moves out. Again, points to another switch off and then is in that position to rotate from the weak side. So a pretty complete possession from him as a team defender. And that's valuable too, because a lot of times when we think about switch schemes, we don't really think about needing to tag because you shouldn't necessarily have to. Like that's kind of the point of switching is so that you're guarding the ball screen action. But the fact that he has that recognition that he still needs to do it is a positive for him. Right. And what you tend to do, and this is the hard part about switching schemes, is particularly when you switch off ball like they do right here, they communicate and point into who's going to end up taking their exchange but as the ball gets driven baseline, he's still reactive enough to not hug his man. It's so easy, particularly as a younger guy who hasn't played in a ton of switching schemes, to want to hug your man when you are switching off ball on the weak side. It's one of the reasons why we do it on our team, and we just run a lot of simple exchanges, is it prevents teams from being able to be maybe a half second early to contest at the rim if we were able to get a shot elsewhere. His recovery and recognition, very, very strong. Here's next play here in the South Florida game. Again, trying to stay with his man and not switch, gets through the initial handoff action. And this is a bluff and recover that kind of shows his natural tools. He can be caught out of position in slight times, but he does have the tools to get through it. So keeper here ends up coming around, blowing up the initial handoff, doesn't want to switch, wants to stay with his guy able to put a little bit of pressure pressure on the perimeter, bluff, and recover to the relocation and contest the shot. Really impressive play. Yeah, multiple actions there and having to cover a lot of ground again. So a couple other things that I noticed here are kind of pick-and-roll defense, and this is where the variety and versatility comes in for me in a way that's at this point just a little more proven than what we've seen with Jarris. So kind of playing the five or at least guarding at that high pick-and-roll level. You see Central Florida wants to go over the top of this action. It's set pretty high above the three-point line, which is going to give the ball handler a little bit of a running start and theoretically more space to read Hendricks. He's not in a deep drop, but he's certainly not up at the level, shadowing here on his hedge, and just does a great job of stringing him out, allowing there to be time to recover, and then getting there to actually block the shot at the end. So pretty good understanding of patience, angles, sliding with the ball, and then getting his contestant. Yeah, and I, the games that I watched, I didn't get to see him in drop. Typically, the ones that I was watching, that he played a little bit more small ball five, and they were using him more as, as a switch big. So that was actually my first possession of seeing him do anything in drop coverage. Which he should be more of a switch big. I think that that's going to be his long-term role, but it is nice to know that there is some scheme versatility if you want to be able to have him in that. And here we see more of the switching. And he holds up. You'd mentioned earlier with Jairus Walker, maybe not ideally or as quick against smaller guards. I think Taylor actually holds up pretty well against smaller, quicker drivers. He moves his feet, he uses his length, and then again, that vertical wall up on the finish to contest the shot. Yeah, I mean, he just swallows it up. I think there's not a lot of players that you can say... I hesitate to use the word, but he has some positionalistness as a defender for sure. Um pretty tantalizing with the amount of different places you can put them on the floor defensively and find successful results. Yeah. So in thinking about future projections to the NBA, a lot of times I like to think of guys and and I've called this the three pillars approach before you're either going to be one of these three pillars that the organization and the team is built around. You're that damn good of a scorer. You're an unbelievable all-star type of talent you need your three pillars in place. And at least two of them have to be players. A third pillar can be like an identity type of thing. We talk about heat culture all the time for Miami. Maybe that's a pillar. 
maybe it's a guy like Rudy Gobert in Utah all those years ago, where it's just rim protection and what he provides is a pillar and a stable part of what you can build your team on. But if you're not going to be one of those two or three pillars, you need to be the best version of a role player that can bring out multiple, multiple strengths from those pillars and allow them to be the best they can be. I don't know about you, but I don't see either Walker or Hendricks projecting forward as that franchise cornerstone type of player, simply because there's too many questions about how they self-create on offense and maybe the, the fluidity of what they bring on that end of the floor. So if we're talking about how they fill in next to other stars, are there certain types of players, whether it's smaller point guards, bigger wing scorers that you think these guys can and cannot play with long-term? The thing with Hendricks is, I mean, at the defensive end of the floor, I just feel like he's going to cover up a lot of different things. And what I just said is true, that you're just going to be able to move him around a lot. So to put it into a specific team example, I feel like over the back end of this season, I was on a podcast, Raptors Republic with Samson Folk in March, and I asked him about the rise of roaming bigs and how we were seeing a lot more of teams, and we've seen it in the playoffs, obviously, with Robert Williams the last two years, but a lot more teams assigning bigs to low-usage wings. And it's not to hide a big. It's for the benefit of the passive sides to keep that big around the rim. So for the Pacers, because they played really small, they had to because the Jalen Smith thing just wasn't working midway through the year. So they went to Aaron Neesmith at the four. Miles Turner's role changed a lot this year by comparison to seasons past where he was used more like he's going to get assigned to Denny Obdia. He's going to get assigned to Josh Giddy so that they can keep him around the basket. Now, do you have the person at the four who you can do that with and then also in other games be able to keep Miles Turner in drop and potentially use somebody as the low man. If you have Taylor Hendricks, I think you can accomplish either one of those two things. And you can have a lot of choices from game to game to be like, hey, you know, tonight we're playing Scotty Barnes and he's going to be at the five and we want Miles to be brazen helping off of him. And we want to have you as a weak side rim protector. Or I mean we want to have you switching out and being at fours or you know like I said, maybe you don't want Miles in space against Kristaps Porzingis, so you want Hendricks on Kristaps Porzingis, and you're going to put Miles on Avdia. You have a lot of options there. And with both of them, I think it rings true that if you have a point guard like a Tyrese Halliburton, where you can use Jarris Walker on the short roll and bring out some of the skills that you might not see in another team, that's valuable. And if you want to use Taylor Hendricks as an off-ball scorer and help him along with some of his feel because Tyrese is going to help him get into the right spots, that's valuable too. So I guess what I'm saying is I think that either one of these two guys would make some sense for the Pacers. I tend to agree with that. And I think your point on the short role playmaking, like Jarris offensively is going to pop a lot more next to a really good lead guard, whereas I think Hendricks can fit next to – more of a wing scorer, so to speak, that you want a high usage pick and roll guy to put Jarris in the best positions to succeed and use some of those latent skills that we didn't get to see as much at Houston. I do also think that, you know, your point about more switchability on the perimeter is a good one for Hendricks with Jarris. I think he'd be the awesome complement with maybe a skinnier front court guy. Like let's look at Chet Holmgren in Oklahoma city, for example. And I don't think, that Jairus Walker is necessarily going to be around when the Thunder are on the clock. But you can toggle those matchups in so many different ways to protect that elite front court guy that is one of your pillars, so to speak, in a Chet Holmgren in a way that really helps Oklahoma City have some scheme and positional versatility to toggle with those matchups and to make sure that Chet isn't always exposed to those bigger, more physical bodies. Maybe that's something that the Cleveland Cavaliers should look into long-term as they want to slide Evan Mobley more to the five in some of those lineups where you can add a different big man in there. So a lot of these skinnier front court guys who we've seen, not sure if he's a four or a five, if you add Jarris Walker to the mix, you really don't need to answer that question. It's just about pairing them together in the sensible way where who's going to guard who on any given night. And that's a question I wanted to ask you that we didn't really touch on with his defense because you're always going to have him out there as a secondary rim protector, which is really valuable. 
how do you feel about his post defense? Because in the games that I watched, because Houston did so much hedging on ball screens, they also did a lot of doubling at the post. They didn't want to have the ball leading to actual post ups. So I didn't get to see him guard in single coverage barely at all. I think maybe he had like 10 possessions. If you look at synergy of how many times he defended the post. So how do you feel his physicality held up at the defensive end versus what we were talking about offensively? Like, would he be able to be somebody that you could cross match if you wanted to protect somebody else's fouls against, you know, more imposing post up threats? Because I tend to lean. No. Yeah. I don't have the the direct answer for that based on film or things that I've seen. It's more so evaluating the tools, right? And he's he's strong. He's got a seven two wingspan. I don't think he. Let me put this way: he's built like he should be really strong. I think he will continue to get functionally stronger uh, over the next several years. And I do like the way that he walls up and uses his, his chest and his length. That that's a really useful skill against guys who are going to try to have hook shots over you. He's also got broad ass shoulders. Like he is a tough guy to try to spin around where if, you know, he's playing three quarter coverage on the the left offensive block and trying to force you back to the baseline. He's a tough guy to hit with your left shoulder and then spin all the way around into a drop step. Like he's just wide. And, And I tend to believe that his center of gravity, his strength are low and strong enough that he'll be okay. Yeah. There was a few where when he was in single coverage, they'd bring somebody over from the weak side where they would get passed. But I, I feel like so much defensively, what I like of his upside has to do a lot more with his hand activity. And then sometimes yeah. like if he's not going to use his physicality, it makes you wonder if, and I don't know how much this changed from him going to IMG to going to Houston, but like if him dropping weight might actually be to his benefit. I know that probably sounds counterintuitive, but in terms of like, if you're not going to utilize it, would he be able to get up and down the floor quicker? Maybe do things more in pump and go situations. I mean, which he already did. He made some good passes yeah. off of movement, which we didn't necessarily touch on with some of the closeouts that he did see. But like, just being able to play in transition more. Like, if it's not something that you actively use, maybe that could unlock other areas of his game. Yeah, both really talented players, both in play somewhere inside the top ten, without that being too much of a reach, and. They offer different things. It's so easy to have this Taylor Hendricks versus Jarris Walker argument and try to figure out who's better. I think they're both going to be good in different ways. It's just about putting them in the right right situations where they can pop first and foremost. Caitlin, your work over at the Patreon and, and writing about these guys has been fantastic, but it's draft season. There's a lot of other stuff going on before you get out of here please let the people know where they can find you and what other work you have coming out soon. Right. So my handle is at C2 underscore Cooper. If you go to my Twitter handle, my Patreon's linked there. It's patreon.com slash basketball. She wrote right now. I'm mainly doing draft profiles. So Jarris Walker's up. Taylor Hendricks is up. And there's going to be another one up in a couple of days that I won't say quite yet who it is. Um, mostly looking at guys at number seven right now, but as time allows, the Pacers do have five picks in this draft, three firsts. So there's a lot of different ways to go. I don't think that they'll be bringing all, I don't think they'll be using all of those picks. They don't even have roster spots for all of those picks, but um, that's definitely where the Pacers at and where the fandom's at in terms of their focus and what they're wanting to be seeing. But I'll also have a mailbag out in the next few days. Cause that's something that I do in, in response for people who choose to be patrons. You can ask questions. I send messages privately there and people ask and then that gets to be exclusive access i also do a fun popsicle thing once a month that i have to get on so <laughs> that 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 will be coming soon too we we love popsicle caitlin too uh this was super fun thank you so much for joining us and, and folks out there listening and watching along please let us know in the comments section you know obviously always rate review subscribe but let us know what you think of this new video format of including some clips to try to augment our conversation here We'd love to continue doing it if you find it all useful. Awesome conversation to have here around two guys that I've been racking my brain about and pulling my hair out, trying to figure out who I prefer. I think I'm going to split the difference and just say it's about fit at the end of the day. Thank you so much for all your support of the Boxing One and the Boxing One podcast, and we will see you soon.